This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Good afternoon. This is Madam Adams. Madam Adams from WABC AM, that's 770 on the dial, and the New York Post. For whatever the reason, I have decided that I am going to interview myself. It's what I do almost every day. I interview someone. But people have told me that the WABC audience, since it's now out there and the station is being reached in many places, that there are people who don't know who I am. Besides the fact that this is insulting, I am going to tell you all who I am today. So I'm going to start with saying the station was bought a couple of years ago by someone I have known a lifetime, John Katsimatidis and his wife, Margot. They bought the station, and I didn't know anything about the station. They decided to put all sorts of people on it, including me. They didn't tell anyone who some of us were, and so that's why I have come to do this. People don't know that maybe they never heard that when the Shah of Iran was dying in a New York hospital, the only person he would see that he sent his emissaries out to bring to the hospital room was me. People don't know that. People don't also know that when the Shah of Iran was dying, I was there. And they don't know that the movie, if you recall, Argo, which was a big hit a couple of years ago, and which Affleck won the award as the best director, it was about some of the hostages, American hostages, that had been taken and were going to be killed if not for the Canadian ambassador who saved them. That was what the movie Argo was about. People don't know that I was there. I was saved the last minute by the Shah who got me out on a Pan Am American flight to America. I was there. The ambassador, the Canadian ambassador, my friend, saved all these American hostages. People don't know that I was saved minutes before it all happened. People don't also know that I happen to have had maybe close to almost a thousand front pages of the New York Post. In the little office in which I work, there are 500 or maybe 600 front pages pasted on the walls and on the ceilings 
of the rooms in which I worked. They don't know that. When I came to the New York Post, I had offices. But my husband, who was a comedian by the name of Joey Adams, he was very fragile. Alzheimer's. I had nurses day and night and weekend and relief. And so I had to move everything that I had and knew out of an official office and into my home. And that's where I record from. And it's where I work from. There are many other such stories about me that are not known to the people out there. Last year, Showtime did a four-part documentary on me. Not because I sit at a microphone and interview people for WABC. Not because I write smart-ass columns for the New York Post and have since almost when Alexander Hamilton founded it, but because I have done what practically nobody else has ever done. And it ended up doing a column in the New York Post four days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and it ended up with John Katzmatidis pulling me onto WABC Radio. I first met John Katzmatidis longer ago than I like to stay, say I'm alive. We were both on the dais, sitting next to each other, for a Republican dinner. This is a thousand years ago. This was when I met John Katsimatidis, sitting together at a Republican dinner. The very next night, John Katsimatidis and his wife Margot gave a dinner party for Hillary Clinton, who was very democratic. That is the John Katsimatidis I know. He then bought, lots of years later, only a couple of years ago, he bought the radio station WABC. It was a moribund station. Nobody much cared about it at the time. I don't think anybody listened to it, including the engineers employed by it. But John bought it. Nobody thought it had a shot. It is now a very important station. And it is because I love John and Margot Katsimatidis that I am on it. So that was my beginning. Now I'm going to have to tell you who I am if you've stayed long enough to listen to my driveling. My parents, my grandmother, was born in Russia. My mother is British. She was born in, in, um, it begins with an L. I thought, what, what, what? Liechtenstein? No. Uh, in, no, in England, and I can't think of the name of the town. Anyway, I will think of the name of the town. She was born in England. When they came over, we had nothing. I was, I was not anybody. I wasn't born. My grandmother and my mother came over. There were five children and very poor. My grandmother made the money 
for the family. What she did was clean stoops on the Lower East Side. She took in boarders. We had nothing. Her husband was a tailor who never made a living. And then came my mother, the next generation, which had to have been better than my grandmother's generation. So my mother learned and spoke perfect English. She worked for people on in City Hall. She was a secretary. She was beautiful. She spoke perfect English. She married a dentist, a New York City dentist. She then decided she didn't like anything about him, including his teeth, and she divorced him when I was about a year old, maybe two years old. But since everyone gets an improvement generationally, my grandmother was nobody, abjectly poor. My mother was an executive secretary. My mother decided this child that she had through this dentist, me, was going to become something. Mind, we had nothing. But my mother knew she was not going to have a nothing child. At the age of 15, she had my nose done. That was not allowed until you're 16 because your nose and your other features keep growing. My mother was not going to wait. We had no money. She took me to someone in Brooklyn. I don't know what happened. Maybe they threw me on a couch, but my nose got done. And my mother enrolled me into an acting class where I ended up now, as you can hear, speaking what is known as broadcast English. Broadcast English is non-regional. I don't sound Southern, Western, British. I speak what is known as broadcast English. My mother decided I to become something. She threw me into an acting class. I was not pretty. I was not able. I was not anything. The acting class taught me to walk, taught me to have grace, taught me how to stand, taught me how to speak, taught me how to do makeup. Like I say, it was generational from the Russian grandma who cleaned stoops to my mother who was very attractive but had no money and was an executive secretary to me. I was not pretty. I was sickly. My mother said, I am not going to be nothing. And so she worked on me until I became a little something. Down the line, I married a comedian by the name of Joey Adams. Joey Adams was never number one in the world. He was not a Bob Hope. He was not a Seinfeld. But he had a number one lifestyle. For openers, he was adopted by the then Mayor LaGuardia. They lived on the same street, the Abrams family, who became Joey Adams, 
and and Joey and the mayor. And Joey would stand on the street corners as a little boy shouting, shout, vote for the mayor, vote for the mayor, in his little piping voice. And he ended up living with the LaGuardias. Thus, some of the best judges money can buy were made in my living room. Besides that, here is something that unless you're an older person, it may not mean anything to you. But Joey had a first wife, his first wife, and a man called Walter Winchell's wife were sisters. In those days, Walter Winchell, this was before television, before anything, when we had radio, he was the number one gossip columnist in the world. He made and he broke presidents. Walter Winchell. Walter Winchell worked for something that is now defunct, the Daily Mirror in New York. But his hideout, where he'd go every single night, was the Stork Club. In those days, it was the number one nightclub. And all the celebrities came there. And Joey, who was just a kid, married to his sister-in-law, sat with him. So he get, got to have dinner with Frank Sinatra. He knew Elizabeth Taylor. He knew all the celebrities because he was the brother-in-law of Walter Winchell. Now, you have to understand, at some point, this is where I came in. He divorced that wife. He then married me, and nobody and nothing I was modeling. I was not anything fabulous. But he was the same age as my mother, and my mother was quite insistent that I married him because she loved nothing in the world but me. She took care of me. I was sickly. I was always in need. I was always with doctors. My mother always had time for me. And so when Joey came along, the same age as my mother, but with all of his connections, all his celebrity know-how, all of his Mayor LaGuardia contacts, she made sure I married him. This was to be somebody who, like my mother, would take care of me. And so, at a tender little age, I knew all of the top celebrities of the world. I knew their phone numbers. I knew their names. I knew how to get in touch with them. In came, all of a sudden, an Australian by the name of Rupert Murdoch. He bought what was then the Post, the New York Post. We didn't know who he was. But one of the things he did was buy Joey Adams' gossip column. It wasn't really gossip. It was a joke column because Joey was a comedian. So he bought Joey Adams' joke called column called Strictly for Laughs. And that was how we got involved with the New York Post. 
the guys who began to run the New York Post on day one were the smartest guys you've ever met. They knew what would sell newspapers. They said, we're going to do our first story, our earliest story, the 10 worst judges in New York. But they didn't have the Rolodex. So they came to people like Joey and me, who are the 10 worst judges. Well, I gave them the 10 worst judges. I didn't know who the hell they were. I don't know if they were the worst judges either. I also didn't care. I gave them worst judges. And that's how we began with the New York Post. After a little while, the early guys needed people like me who would lead them and tell them. And so, when a gossip columnist passed on, his name was Earl Wilson, when he passed on, they came to me. They said, you have got to take over this column because you know everything and everybody. Of course I didn't, but it was enough for a beginning. And so, that is how Cindy Adams became a gossip columnist on the New York Post, and how I also got to know with people like John Katsimatidis and his wife Margot, whom I loved and who loved me. And when they bought WABC, the first person they came to was me. They didn't know that in the early, early, early days of NBC radio, I was the mistress of ceremonies for NBC's radio international program, program, program called Monitor. So I've done my daily duty. I know how to do this. And that is why they decided that I should open my mouth, which I rarely keep shut. And they told me I had to interview myself so that people who are now listening to WABC, because the radio station has become important and has reached much further than maybe people who always used to read the New York Post, they were not sure that everyone knew exactly who I was. I was not just a zero. I have paid my dues, and I'm about to tell you after a station break exactly who I am, why they were sending me out of the country when the Shah was being taken over, why the Shah came to me on his deathbed, why I have six, seven hundred front pages on my walls. There's a reason. And right after the station break, I'm going to tell you. Stick around. It's me, Madam Adams. I am back again to tell you a little bit more about me. Usually I interview people, but as I've been told, by John Katsimatidis, who owns this radio station, he asked me if I would please do an interview with myself. 
It feels a little strange doing it, but I understand that he thinks there are some people where the station has reached and the newspapers maybe haven't, that you don't know who I am or who the voice is. So I'm going to tell you some of my stories. I'm going to tell you that I interviewed Noriega and was there when he was put into jail. When Noriega was the general in charge of Panama, I was asked by Noriega to come down and do an interview with the general. I didn't know Noriega from a load of coal cars. I had to study to know what the hell and who cares what's a Noriega. But I was not about to lose a story. So I studied up on General Manuel Antonio Noriega of Panama. I flew down with a photographer from the New York Post. We were not accustomed to doing these kinds of tough stories, but we did it. We landed in the airport, and the minute the plane landed, all the lights were turned off. We were in pitch black. We were terrified. We were scared. We didn't know where we were. We were there at the invitation of General Manuel Antonio Noriega, but he wasn't there at the airport to greet us. The airport was pitch black. Not another soul was there. Soldiers in their khaki uniforms with rifles at the ready opened the door of the plane to take us out. I cannot tell you how scared we were. They didn't speak, my Spanish is limited. I speak it, but not enough to talk to soldiers. At gunpoint, they took us out and put us into a black car. The roads were also pitch black. They didn't speak to us. They took us on a 30-minute ride into we didn't know where. It ended up we were taken to a party where General Manuel Antonio Noriega was having a good time. I did a series of interviews with him, many interviews with him, and I was there the day he was sentenced in Florida and was thrown into prison where it was the end of him. Here is a story that's sort of interesting. He was there as a result of the War Department. So you had to go through first his lawyer, then the War Department, then the prison authorities, if you wanted to get back to speak to General Manuel Antonio Noriega. I didn't know how to do all that. I'd never done it. But he sent word through his lawyer he wanted to speak to me. It was one day after he'd been in prison for a while. I didn't know anyone in the war department. I only knew his lawyer. So his lawyer made the arrangements. It took months 
to get the arrangements made. Finally, it was decided he would call me Wednesday at four o'clock. Of course, I was home Wednesday at four o'clock, waiting for his phone call. It never came. He couldn't get to the telephone at that time. He didn't have access to the telephone, despite that he had been the general and ran Panama. He was just a wartime criminal, and he couldn't get to a phone. So after a lot of letters and phone calls back and forth with his lawyer, we made a second time that he would call me. He was going to call me Tuesday at two o'clock. I could not call him. He had to call me. Okay, so I'm home again. I'm home here waiting nervous, scared with a paper, a pencil, waiting for the phone call. Phone call never came. So now it's a third time. This is the third time in several months that it took for the general to get a call to me. I am sitting actually in my kitchen. I remember this like it was yesterday. I had my dog on my lap. The phone rang. I picked it up, and the voice that was familiar to me said, Cindy, it is the general. I want to talk to you. I said, oh, general, I am so happy to speak to you. Tell me, what is it you want to say to me? At this point, my Yorkie, a Yorkshire Terrier, four pounds, bit into the wire of the telephone and cut him off. And right after that, the general passed away. And never again did I hear from General Manuel Antonio Noriega. That's one of my many, many stories. Okay, okay. I'll tell you a couple of other stories. So, it's Christmas time. And I am sitting in the university club at the time that Hillary was first lady. We knew each other quite well. She had had lunch in the university club. And then we were going to sit and talk. Now, the university club has a very long library. It's very austere. It's got plants and it's got statues. And it was just. Hillary and me and her chief of staff lady. And we were opening Christmas presents. So we were rustling and we were making noise and we were laughing and we were having fun and we were making a lot of noise. From down the long hallway, some porcelain statue got up and walked towards us. He was about 140 years old, which was when the club was founded. He looked like one of its original members, and he pointed to my cell phone. I had had to call. I was then on NBC television. I had to call TV to say I'm going to be late because the lunch with Hillary was taking a little bit longer. So I took out my cell phone to call. This porcelain statue, 900 years old minimum, 
came over, doddering to me, pointed to my cell phone, and in front of the first lady said, Young lady, that machinery of yours has got to be turned off. The machinery was a cell phone. The club itself is 168 years old, and like I say, he must have been an original member. We were so nervous and scared because she was the first lady and there were police around, but this was their club, and people said, you have to leave the club. I have to leave the club? The first lady, Hillary, is being thrown out of the university club? Yes, we were. So we went to, we packed up all our things. We went to the door. It was snowing. Our cars were not yet there. They had known we were going to be there for another hour. And so we had no cars. And the first lady and me are standing outside in the snow waiting for our cars because this old F-A-R-T had thrown us out of the university club. Like I'm saying, I am telling these stories because the guys at WABC have been asking me to tell them so that maybe, maybe if you didn't know what I was or who I was, maybe you would get to know them. This ended up the front page of the New York Post. The headline was Kicked Out, and there was a picture of Hillary on the front page and the story underneath it. Okay, okay, I'm going to tell you another story. I brought the Miss Universe pageant to the Philippines. Before me, the Miss Universe pageant had been around since the Stone Age, probably since Lincoln, but always in the United States of America, always within our ground. I came in, and because I have lived abroad and known so many people, I said, this is to be called the Miss Universe pageant, and we're only in places in Albany or maybe Columbia somewhere. I will put it everywhere. And so I called my friend Imelda Marcos, who was then the first lady of the Philippines. And I said, Imelda, how would you like to have the Miss Universe pageant in Manila? She said, oh, my God. It's wonderful. How, how, how can we do that? I said, you have to get permission from your husband, the president. You have to make the arrangements for a theater and for hotels, and I will do the rest. And I brought the Miss Universe pageant, the first time ever in its history that we broadcast to the world. Now, let me tell you about Imelda Marcos. This is an absolute true story. I've written about it. It's true. There was to be a hurricane that was to come down on Luzon Island, 
L-U-Z-O-N. Luzon Island is the main island in the Philippines. And the day it was scheduled to hit was the day the Miss Universe pageant was to broadcast to hundreds of millions of people. We were panicked. We were terrified. This was hundreds of millions of dollars that was involved, and we were scared. Imelda had built a studio specially for us. It was open on three sides. It was actually a theater that was open on three sides. She had built it just for the Miss Universe pageant. But, as I say, it was open on three sides, and the hurricane was due to come in that day. You're not going to believe the story, but the story is historic, and it's been written about. Imelda sent up the Philippine Air Force. What they did, or what they used to seed the clouds, I still don't know. But they seeded these ugly, puffy, black clouds, which then floated out into a radius of 50 miles outside where we were about to televise. They stayed away for 24 hours. The pageant was allowed to be broadcast or telecast. We did the show, and then the very next day, the clouds came back, big, black, ugly clouds, and we were locked in to Manila. We were locked in for three days because nothing, not anything could move out of Manila. That's one of my many stories with Imelda Marcos. And then I was here with Imelda when she was on trial. As you may have heard, she had a little arithmetic uh, Alzheimer's. She couldn't remember where she misplaced 800 million U.S. dollars. And so she was on trial. And who was there alongside her, with her, every day, in front of a New York City judge? Me. And I was there with her when she was acquitted. And she crawled up the altar, to the altar of St. Patrick's Cathedral. She crept up on her knees to give thanks to God when she was acquitted. She lived at the, at the Waldorf, whatever happened to the Waldorf Astoria, she lived in the General MacArthur Suite, and we had one day, she made it, the living room, into a cathedral, into a church, and the people prayed, her people were praying in the church, that she would be released and she would be okay. And so she was, and when she was okayed, she walked up on her knees all the way to the altar of St. Patrick's Cathedral in gratitude. And then she collapsed and was taken to the hospital. And who was with her then? Me. I was with her in the hospital. I knew Imelda Marcos. We have been hearing stories about the people on CNN and the son of Gloria Vanderbilt. 
But there was the day that I was there with Imelda, and she and Gloria Vanderbilt had an open trunk, and in the open trunk were pearls and jewelry, and the two of them were playing with the pearls and the jewelry on the floor like they were little toys. Imelda liked to play. She was up till four o'clock every morning. She was singing. Her favorite song was The Yellow Rose of Texas. And I can tell you a thousand more stories about Imelda Marcos. Some of them I'm not allowed to be told. But one day, if you give me another glass of wine and I'm not on the air, I could tell you a couple of other stories. I can remember, I can remember stories of Donald. I knew Donald because of my husband, Joey. Joey, as I have said earlier, was a comedian, not number one, but he lived a number one lifestyle. And he was what they called the Toastmaster General. He would emcee every dinner. If some priest became a cardinal, he did the emcee. If some nobody became a, a, an important person, Joey did the emceeing. And so Roy Cohn, who was what he was, loved to be in the spotlight. And he loved politics. And he loved to be important. So he was a very close friend of Joey's. He, I meant nothing to him. He ignored me. I was nobody in the early days. But he was very close to Joey. And we would go to Roy Cohn's house often. And we would meet a little young guy there. A little young guy by the name of Donald Trump. And after we do a station break, I will come back and I will tell you some stories about Donald and Roy Cohn. I was just telling you a story about Roy Cohn. Nobody is saying Roy Cohn was a nice, sweet gentleman. I have no intention of telling you that. But I ended up knowing Roy Cohn, and that's how I got to know Donald Trump. The reason I got to know Roy Cohn was I was nothing. I meant nothing to Roy Cohn. He couldn't have cared less about me. I was just a young little girl who was hanging around Joey Adams. But he was close to Joey Adams. He gave my husband, the comedian Joey Adams, Joey's birthday party every year because he needed Joey to emcee all of his parties. He needed Joey to be the MC at every dinner that he would give for politicians. And so they were very, very close. So one day, one day, there was to be a dinner party. Roy Cohn was giving a dinner party. And it was at the house, not his house, but at the house of somebody in Jamaica, Queens. All of the people who were there at the time have since gone to the can. I can't help that. That happens to be the people I knew. So I'm sitting at a table. We were a very small group. It was only maybe 20 of us. And there were small round tables. I was sitting at one table. And at the other side of me was this tall guy, blonde hair, 
and next to him was some blonde who I didn't know and also didn't care. But this guy sitting next to me, I'd never seen. And I said, who are you? He said, who, who am I? I'm Donald Trump. And I said, well, a big muzzle tov to you. What's a Donald Trump? And he had just recently started to come around New York. And he just recently had started to hire uh, Roy Cohn. And I said, okay, so what's a Donald Trump? And he said, I am going to do a lot of things here. And Roy Cohn overheard him. And Roy Cohn stood over him and said to me, quote, one day this kid is going to own New York. And I bring this up because the very day, a thousand years later, when he was elected president originally, I was standing with him. It was late at night. It was 10 o'clock-ish. It was in his office, and it was all the wall-size huge TVs that were predicting the winner for tonight's election is going to be Donald Trump. We were standing there. It was just the two of us standing alone in the center of the room, staring at a wall-sized TV. Behind us was his family standing there. Behind them was a partition and were the staffers and the workers. The only two people standing together, locked together, whispering to one another as we stared at the television was Donald and me. And all he said to me was, he wasn't chatty. Donald was not talking. All he said to me in my ear that nobody else could hear was, quote, do you remember what Roy Cohn said to you many years ago? And I said, yeah, I remember. And there was not one more word that was said between us. And right after that, the guy who was standing with me became president of the United States of America. That's how I met Donald Trump. And that's my story of Roy Cohn. And I have many more stories to tell you, but I don't think I have the strength to keep going on. And I don't think you have the patience to listen to me for many more stories. But this was the idea for the guys who own WABC, to, for me to tell you who I am and so that you can know who I am and you can understand that when I get on the air and I interview somebody, maybe I'm more than some just dumb-ass talker. I've proved it. I've lived it. I've done it. And I'm going to keep on. And thank you very much for listening to me this long. It's Cindy Adams saying thank you for WABC. Bye.